Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Paul Hardbottle, and this week's battlefield briefing will be at the cradle of Western civilization, the Mediterranean island of Crete. Most servicemen and women are brave, but there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare, but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, was subjugated and starving. Then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Now, before you start thinking that I'm just starting to repeat myself because, well, I've been reading too much and it's bruised my little brain, uh, that's completely on the cards, I'm sure you will note that if you listened to last week's Battlefield Briefing about Greece, that I would have used Churchill's speech that I used tonight. I have, and I think for a good reason, wanted to further explore Churchill's mindset while fighting this war and further clarify my own position on Churchill and his place in history. Some people think that he was a fairly cold, ruthless and calculated uh, sort of man, uh, tinged with the same sort of sins that uh, of Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini in regards to ego and hubris. Well, there's strong opinions and, and you know, the people are entitled to them. And if you look at his actions without the context of his life's experience and the personality, you can probably construct a fairly compelling case. Though by now you're probably waiting for the big but. 
well, let me not disappoint. But I can't help but think of this famous anecdote that may or may not even be true of the time when Churchill, when asked to cut funding for the arts in order to support the war effort in World War II, he looked at the man and gravely responded, then what are we fighting for? I can't see Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini for that matter thinking in those terms, can you? Look, Churchill was many things. War leader, imperialist, certainly. Uh, adventurer, historian, um, and, and a very fine one. Well, he tended to... Uh, <laughs> He tended to put himself as the hero of history, and, and I guess that, well, he was there at the time, but uh, he finally comes out um, looking pretty good every time he writes anything about himself. Uh, though he is, I have to say, a very compelling read. Look, he was a father and a husband, and I'll say it, he was a notoriously heavy drinker. His politics were hard right, and, well, his whiskey bottle was hardly left. But he had an understanding, an empathy, if you will, uh, a friendship with the common man through his experiences. And I think they were born out of uh, his experiences in the trenches of World War I as a correspondent in the Boer War and in, in the colonial uprisings of the 1890s. Personally, I think he was, I think he was all of those things to a degree. Uh, he was a very, very complex man, uh, with each of those complexities contending with its opposite. And um, in the desperate throes of 1941, when faced with an empire groaning under the weight of attacks from fascists and revolutionaries alike, he had unrestricted submarine warfare, threatening to very nearly bring his home island of England to the brink of economic collapse and sinking more merchant shipping than could be uh, readily replaced. We remember the, 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 the anecdotal story of the boy sticking his finger in the dikes. Well, I have to think that Churchill probably could uh, empathise with that lad. That's how I see him anyway. I, I think he was a hard man. He was an intelligent man, um, very dogged personality and he was a man who would see things through I and mean, he could see out the other side and he would just push and he had the ability to take people with him. He took an entire country with him, possibly an entire empire. But um, I, look, I don't think history is going to be overly harsh on him and he made some um, fairly controversial decisions and... Uh, and fairly, he should be criticised for them, but I, I think history will play out on his side. As he said once when people said, asked him what he, how he would be thought of in history, he just turned and remarked that uh, history would see him well because he was going to write it. And, in, <laughs> and indeed he did. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read history, Churchill's comments on the Second World War, but um, yeah, it's well worth the read. If you can get the audio book, it's extraordinary just sitting back and listening to it all. Look, my sympathies are with him, of course, but he was the sort of man to add 
I guess he would thrust any colonial grist to the mill that he could, and then he'd look around for some more to, to stick into that mill. Well, the feeling generally, I think, and certainly it was in my case, that we were British stock, we're part of the British Empire. There was a very high proportion of sons of old digs, and uh, um, they just took it just for granted that uh, Britain was at war. And uh, Menzies, of course, declared uh, we were at war too, and they took it for granted that we'd uh, that um, they would en en enlist in any uh, overseas force. Yeah, he was a hard man, and look, it was hard times. I doubt that he would care if he was blamed or not. I think he had an eye to how history thought of him, but at the ultimate end of the day, and I think that. He was just a man who had a responsibility, a, a job, a calling, if you will, and he was determined to see it through, come hell or high water. One man, I think, modelled himself a little bit on, on Churchill, uh, but certainly wasn't of the same stature as, or greatness as him, who did care about getting blame and the political consequences of what was happening in Greece was the Australian PM Liberal Party um, Prime Minister, uh, Robert Menzies, who ultimately had lost the confidence of the parliament and uh, had to hand over power um, originally to McFadden um, and, and then the eventually over to... Look, I, I think, <laughs> without being partisan, I think John Curtin could probably put his hand up to being the greatest... Australian Prime Minister. I mean, the man literally worked himself to death uh, to deliver Australia through its darkest hours. And regardless of whether you're a Liberal Party person or a, or a Labor Party person, I think everyone can doff their hat and say, well done, John Curtin. Um, whether it was politicians' calculated ethoses or the bumbling assumptions of the military high command, I think personally there was enough blame with the Greek campaign for everybody. War is a very chaotic thing and it rewards preparedness, but it doesn't guarantee reward. <laughs> you can be prepared, but all you're doing is you're really, you're really cutting down your chances of things going horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, but look, it, war is also very fickle uh, in its favourites. And Churchill would have a lot more bad news before he was going to get good news. And so, after the debacle of Greece, they pinned all their hopes on the quickly fortified island of Crete. First of all, there was this noise like a great swarm of bees it seemed to me to looking back on it just before you could sort of more or less sense rather than saw and then way out in the distance you could see this great black cloud as it were very indistinct but then the noise and the throbbing grew louder and it was obvious it was a great armada of aircraft of all description the machine steigt und stürzt in Hütteburn. Yes, okay, so to recap from last week's, uh, sorry, from last episode, we learned about the Allied debacle in the Greek campaign and how the Germans 
unceremoniously kicked the Australian and New Zealand divisions out of Greece and the, well, the British Armoured Regiment was ground to a halt and they'd lost pretty well all their heavy equipment, some of them escaping literally with their rifles and in some cases not even that and their pants intact. British forces had initially garrisoned Crete when the Italians attacked on in Greece on the 28th of October 1940, enabling the Greek government to employ the 5th Cretan Division, who fought well in the mainland campaign, but they look they were subsequently destroyed on the offensive operations against the Italians. This arrangement suited the British. Crete was to provide the Royal Navy with an excellent harbours in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, from which it could threaten the Axis uh, southeastern flank, and more importantly, it was within range of British bombers were they to take off from the uh, northern airfields to threaten the Romanian oil fields, which Hitler absolutely required. If they could strike a blow there, it was it was going to be hard hard going for for Hitler. So, to that end. German Army High Command was preoccupied with plans and preparations for Operation Barbarossa, which was the invasion of the Soviet Union, and was largely opposed to a German attack on Crete. However, Hitler remained concerned about the attacks in other theatres, and in particular to his Romanian fuel supply, and that's fair enough. The Luftwaffe uh, commanders led by the blustering Hermann Goering were enthusiastic about the idea of seizing Crete by a airborne attack of daring do and of course Hermann Goering was encouraged also that it could be done by General Student who we will get to meet in close detail as we go. The desire to regain prestige after their defeat after they'd been given, well, a bit of a bollocking, I have to say, uh, of from the Royal Air Force, well done RAF, uh, in the Battle of Britain the year before. Also, it may have played some small role in their thinking, especially before the advent of much more important invasion of the Soviet Union. Goring had lost a fair bit of political capital with Hitler, I think, and um, he was looking for a way to make good. A kind of... I don't know, it, it's almost... When you when you talk about the German high command sometimes uh, in the Second World War, it's almost like the godfather, isn't it? It's like, oh dear. Um, okay, so Hitler was won over by this audacious proposal. Uh, he liked it, he liked its audacity, and he was always impressed with speed. Now, many will know, but some may not, that Hitler himself was a soldier, and... He was trained in the First World War. He, he was a, a soldier uh, who was gassed at the very end. But the German army in the First World War were really driving home the idea of speed to strike the enemy and move around the enemy and continue on. If you remember back to Joseph Cable, that's why they pulled back and they went and they, they identified him as a hard point, even though with his last breath, 
he'd, he'd seen them off sort of thing, but they thought that there was probably more there and they pulled back. And so that's how the Germans were really thinking. They weren't going to waste lives needlessly. If they hit a hard point, they'd move around it. And I think Hitler was very much uh, a person who liked to approach things through movement. And if he could get around a hard point, he would try to do that. And uh, Crete looked like an easy picking. Hitler, won over by the audacious proposal, and in the Directive 31 uh, that he asserted, Crete will be the operational base from which to carry on the air war in the eastern Mediterranean in coordination with the situation in North Africa. There you go. That's my Hitler impersonation. Hope you like it. <laughs> yes, yes I, won't, I won't go full Hitler. <laughs> it must not be allowed to interfere with um, planned campaign in the Soviet Union. And this is what he was really worried about. He just wanted to tidy up his flanks, if, if you will, and, and, and get it out of the road so he didn't have to worry about it, so he could concentrate on the Soviet Union. That was his baby. That's what he had his heart set on. And this is why he was so upset with Mussolini in the first place. He didn't want to go in here if he didn't have to. Before Mussolini had gone into uh, Greece, everybody was cowed down. I mean, Greece itself was a fascist dictatorship. You know, it was pulling the line. Hitler wouldn't have had a problem with it. Uh, Bulgaria was there. We had... Yugoslavia was towing the line and yeah just Mussolini went in there and just completely upset the whole apple cart so <laughs> nine 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 this Mussolini is why we cannot have nice things don't off yes anyway poor old Mussolini the German Wehrmacht continues to this day to enjoy a high reputation as a fighting force in the finest professional army of modern times. Scholars, military professionals and buffs alike all obsess over its flexible system of command and control, its skill at combined arms, its meticulous planning, its drive, its aggression. But anyone who thinks that German planning is synonymous with excellence, or who thinks that any officer wearing a red stripe on his trousers, the simple even Spartan, indicator of membership of the elite German general staff, that could do no wrong should take a closer look at what happened on the Mediterranean island of Crete in May 1941. Some of the finest minds of the Wehrmacht came up with just the sort of German operational plan that has been so beloved by military historians over the years. It was bold, aggressive, pioneering, yet the operation destroyed the division that carried it out. So high were the casualties in Operation Mercury. In fact, more, more Germans had suffered um, in that particular operation than for the rest of the war to date. The German Führer Adolf Hitler, never one to spare the lives of his men under his own command, swore that he would never attack this way again. And while Hitler was wrong about a good many things in this war, it was hard to argue with his reasoning for this time, although I probably will further down the track. 
the airdrop on Crete itself was a culmination of two developments, one long-term and the other short-term. The long-term development was the rise of the airborne arm before the war. Virtually every army in the world experimented with paratroops and glider-borne infantry during the 20s and the 30s in an era obsessed with restoring mobility to military operations. Airborne troops seemed an ideal solution using vertical envelopment to keep battlefields fluid and to prevent trench deadlock. In Germany, planners viewed the paratrooper, or Fallschirmjager, as yet another means to pursue their ideals of the war of movement and to avoid the static positional warfare, uh, which they referred to as Stullenskrieg. This had ground the German army down in the First World War and they were, I guess all of the armies didn't want to go back to that. I mean, who would? But in the opening campaign of the Second World War, paratroops helped to achieve these goals, although the operations were not without cost. Airborne forces played a crucial role in the economy of force, invasions of Denmark and Norway in April 1940. For example, when two companies captured a Danish fortress and secured the long bridge linking a ferry terminal at Copenhagen. It was a picture-perfect landing and led to a bloodless capture of the bridge's small garrison. Another company landed at Alborg in the far north of the Jutland Peninsula, seizing the two key airfields there and to use as a staging base, these were used in the invasion of Norway. A company-sized drop at Donbos in Norway ended very badly when the paratroopers jumped directly into the Norwegian strongpoint guarding the railroad junction, leading to Andelnes and Trondheim. They suffered heavy losses in the jump, found themselves surrounded by the Norwegians and had to surrender four days later. Paratroopers, from my mind, they don't do well when they're dropped directly down on top of the enemy. Far better for them to be dropped somewhere where the enemy isn't and land and regroup and then and move out from there. In the 1940 campaign in the West, Operation Yellow, the Airborne again played a major role. Paratroops formed the spearhead of the drive into the Netherlands by Army Group B, led by General Fedor von Bock, while they disrupted the Dutch defences, it's true, once again there were problems. The landing around The Hague, for example, uh, intended to secure three airfields, ran into a storm of Dutch anti-aircraft fire. Although they managed to seize their objectives, they could not hold them. The Dutch would take some 1,200 German prisoners in the course of the fighting there, just about the only POWs they talk in this entire short campaign. However, they were returned to duty when the Dutch capitulated. A little bit further to the south, glider-borne troops seized the mighty Belgian fortress at even Imal. In a daring coup de main, they landed directly on top of the fortification and destroyed it and its heavily fortified guns with newly designed shape charges. It was, and still is, a stunning achievement. They also took part, somewhat less successfully, in the great German panzer drive through the Ardennes forest, landing at Neves and Wittry on May the 10th. 
the operation was known as the Niwi landing. The short-term factor leading to the airdrop on Crete was an unexpected campaign in the Balkans in April and May in 1941, which arose out of Benito Mussolini's ill-advised decision to invade Greece, as we've previously discussed. Thanks to the subsequent humiliation of the Italians at the hands of the poorly equipped but hardy Greek army, and the equally ill-advised British decision to rush assistance to the Greeks, the Balkans campaign was the lightning war par excellence. Conducting two simultaneous operations, Operation 25 against Yugoslavia and Operation Rita against Greece, the Wehrmacht ran over and around every defensive position in its path. Yugoslavia, surrounded even before the first shot was fired, was incapable of putting up much resistance, and German casualties in the entire campaign numbered only in the hundreds. Greece wasn't much more trouble, even with the British and Anzac intervention. General Friedrich List of the 12th Army carried out an end run around the major Greek fortifications on the Metexas line, hooking through southern Yugoslavia and thus unhinging any Greek attempts to make a stand to the north. The inadequate British intervention, consisting of Force W, which was two divisions, as we discussed, uh, 2nd New Zealand Division and the 6th Australian Infantry Division. The 1st Tank Brigade and a small uh, commitment of air power. One by one, its defensive positions fell in direct assault, or in a turning movement. The Alakamon Line fell on the April of the 11th, Mount Olympus, uh, position fell on April the 16th and the Thinopoli line on April 24th. And um, on Anzac Day, the Australians and the New Zealanders to clamber back onto the boats around Athens and further to the south and get out of Dodge. Throughout the campaign, the Commonwealth troops were under almost constant and unopposed attack by the German Luftwaffe a problem that none of the Allied powers had yet solved. The defenders would evacuate Greece from the ports of Attica and, and the Peloponnesus in the course of the next week. It had been another distressing experience for the British Expeditionary Force. <laughs> I was reading, some wags began to joke that BEF at that stage of the game was starting to stand for back every fortnight. So <laughs> I thought I'd share that with you. Indeed, so rapidly had the Wehrmacht overrun Greece that the plans to utilise German airborne formations had barely kept up. General Kurt Student, uh, commanding Germany's airborne arm, came up with one suitable mission after another, only to find that the ground forces had already overrun the intended position. Once, only once, did he draw a bead on a target and hit it. On April the 26th, two battalions of the 2nd Folsom-Yaga Regiment dropped onto the Isthmus of Corinth. They seized the bridge over the Corinth Canal uh, before the British could destroy it, and German engineers quickly cut the line to the detonator. A disaster followed when a lucky shot by a British anti-aircraft gun set off the charge over the bridge. The subsequent explosion dropped the bridge and killed most of the German paratroopers who were crossing it, along with the German war correspondent filming the action. 
Uh, the chilling footage of this disaster survived, though I could not find it or get my hands on it, because uh, otherwise I would have tried to link it. The departure of the Force W presented the Wehrmacht with a classic dilemma. As fast and as far as it had come, it now ran out of room, and in the West in 1940, it had reached its nemesis, the sea. There was no German navy to speak of, and Germany's Italian allies were increasingly skittish about sailing off into dangerous waters, or even ones that were in their own backyard for that matter. Not for the last time in this war, German ground forces appeared to have conquered themselves into an impasse. But unlike their post-Dunkirk lull, the Germans decided to, to pursue this time. There was still one German force capable of continuing the advance and going after the beaten British and Anzac forces. And General Student now had an entire airborne corps under his command, the 11 Flieger Corps, pairing a complete parachute division, the 7th Flieger Division, with a air landing division, 22nd of Luftland Division, configured for air transport and ready to land at an airfield once the hunters from the sky had captured it. General Student now saw an ideal opportunity for action, one that would aim high and establish the bona fides of the paratroop arm once and for all. The target was Crete. Seizing the island would help round up the demoralised and fleeing enemy. It would allow the German bombers to launch raids against Alexandria, 350 miles away, and perhaps even Suez, which was 500 miles. It would be a chink in the chain of the British naval bases in the Mediterranean that had linked Gibraltar to the Suez Canal. It all seemed reasonable enough, and at April the 21st conference, there were representatives of the Luftwaffe. Uh, Adolf Hitler listened to them and gave his assent. Four days later, on April the 25th, Fuhrer Directive 28 would contain the outline for Operation Mercury and to proceed with the airdrop on Crete. As was typical of German operations over the years, all this was done very quickly. For centuries, German planners and field commanders alike had favoured the Kurtz und Weiss campaign, or short and lively blow that hit the, heart, the enemy hard and fast and left him two days to respond. The desired end state was the Kesselschlacht, or the Cauldron Battle, that encircled and destroyed the enemy. It had worked well over the years, but... The stress on manoeuvre often meant that other important aspects of war making, things like intelligence gathering, counterintelligence, transport, logistics and supply, were often given very short shrift. So if you're going to play fast and loose, uh, sometimes things can unravel. And so it was with Crete. No one in the German High Command had given the island too much thought up until April 1941, and now suddenly there was plans to conquer it. Moreover, the operation had to be wrapped up very quickly. Hitler had already had his sights set on the Great Campaign in the East, with Operation Barbarossa, to be launched in June. Directive 28 stated specifically that Operation Mercury was in no way to delay the start of the operations against the Soviet Union. Just to put that extra bit of pressure on. Now, 
such a helter-skelter approach meant that there was loose ends aplenty. And the 22nd Luften divisions, for example, well, they were unavailable. It was in Romania, helping guard the oil fields against Soviet threat. And there was neither the time nor the available transport to bring it south. In its place was the veteran 5th Mountain Division. It was exhausted, and to be sure, from the pounding march over the mountains in the recently conquered Greek campaign. It always left the, the German planners unmoved. If the men were tired, well, they could rest when they'd conquered Crete. The bigger problem was that the division was not configured for landing from the air, nor had it ever been transported by air. Likewise, the haste in the launching of this operation meant that it would be impossible to gather enough transport aircraft to get the entire 7th Flieger Division to Crete all at once. Even if all the aircraft had been available, the airfields and f facilities in southern Greece were completely insufficient to hold and service them all. As a result, and already complex plan to land the paratroopers in three groups, west, centre and east, corresponding to the Malim Canae sector, the Suda Retamo sector and the Heraculan sector. And so it was had to cope with further complications. Now the three groups would have to land in two separate waves, with the first landing in the morning and the second later in the day. Group West would be part of Wave 1, Group East would be part of Wave 2. Between these sites, however, Group Centre would be split, with part of it landing in the morning and part in the afternoon. The prize for each of these groups was an airfield at Malim in the west, at Retamo in the centre, and at, and at Heraculin in the east. Once the paratroopers had secured the airfield, the 5th Mountain Division could fly in and land, supplying the muscle to conquer the rest of the island. Too easy. Okay, well, it wasn't necessarily all these three airfields um, had to fall, but it was absolutely imperative that one of them to be controlled within the first 48 hours. The approximate holdout limit for a lightly armed paratroopers was about 48 hours. Then, once a sizable portion of the coastline was in the German hands, there would be a third phase, when a motley flotilla of motorised sailboats, Greek boats, and frankly, <laughs> pretty much anything that would float, uh, would be shipping the rest of the 5th Mountain Division to Crete. So, it's kind of like a um, Dunkirk in reverse, if you wanted to imagine that, with Nazis all over them. Needless to say, this was not a simple operation prospectus, that is for sure. And there was one last problem. The haste of the planning process had made it impossible to establish an accurate estimate of Commonwealth strength on, on the island, so they hadn't bothered to find out how many troops were actually there to any great detail. And even by the usually low standards of German intelligence gathering, there was a serious undercounting. The Germans, with a force of some 22,000, expected to meet some 15,000 enemy troops on Crete. The actual number of the ground troops was more like 42,000, including the better part of two complete divisions. To emphasise this lack of information and um, poor 
uh, intelligence, one of the commanders was just climbing onto uh, the first wave of uh, paratroopers and uh, he was just handed a quick note out of the aeroplane and he was just he was strapped into the, inside the aircraft and looked at it and the, and the message read, uh, we don't think it's 15,000 now, we think it's about 42,000. <laughs> so, door slams shut and away he goes. <laughs> you can imagine how he felt on the way through. Anyway, all right, well, back to that. Now, even considering that 10,000 of these were poorly armed Greek troops, uh, it was still formidable force uh, to defend a mountainous island that was only 140 miles long and just seven miles wide at its narrowest. Despite all of the ad hocery, improvisation misfires, Operation Mercury would turn out to be yet another military history milestone for the Wehrmacht. The first operation conceived, planned, executed at solely by parachute troops. It would be much larger than any previous German paratroop operation. Making the jump this time would not be a battalion or a handful of companies, but the entire 7th Fleet Division under the command of Lieutenant General Wilhelm Susemann. It would be assisted by a special assault detachment Sturm Regiment, three consisting of paratroops and one of glider-borne infantry. Two regiments of the 5th Mountain Division, under the command of Major General Julius Ringel, were standing in Greece, ready to be flown into Crete. Once the paratroops had seized the airfield, air support in the form of Lieutenant General Wolfram von Richthofen, and <laughs> no, not that Richthofen, uh, actually went off and had a bit of a look. He was actually the cousin of that von Richthofen. Manfred von Richthofen and his brother Lothar. Uh, they were both flying aces and they both encouraged him to join the German Imperial Air Service. And he did so, and he joined uh, Manfred's Gerschwader uh, fighter wing. Oh, I'm sure my Germans are poor. <laughs> you just keep throwing constants at me. She'll be right. On Wolfram's first mission with his cousin on the 21st of April. So his very first mission was the mission uh, that the legendary Red Baron was shot down by uh, Australian anti-aircraft fire. I'm sure he was. that was on his mind at times, but I digress. Eighth Flieger Corps would be lavish. Almost 300 medium bombers, 150 Junker JU-87 Stuka dive bombers, 100 ME-109 uh, Schmidt fighters, and about the same number of twin-engine Messerschmitt ME-110 fighter bombs. And off they went. At first light, on May the 20th, 1941, the skies over Crete were suddenly filled with German transport aircraft. Paratroops landed up and down the length of the island, both by parachute and by glider. The three principal targets, the Malim, Canae sector, the Retimo and the Heraculin were spread along 70 miles of the northern coast of Crete. Students' troops were landing everywhere, relying heavily on the disruptive uh, effect of airborne surprise. Students call it the spreading of the oil slick. 
with small groups inundating the countryside, then eventually forming up into larger masses. Once again, as, a, as in Denmark and Norway, the Germans demonstrated their gift for solid staff work and all of these widely dispersed landings were on time and on target. Corporal Hans Kriedler recounted of his, of his jump when he knew there was something wrong and his transport had, had been approaching the island low and slow, slicing through the beautiful Mediterranean morning towards the drop and when he was about 450 yards west of the village. Uh, then he heard an explosion and saw big white puffs in the sky. The bright streaks whizzing past the aircraft. Uh, a blast rocked his own Junkers Ju-52. This was not how they had briefed it before the takeoff, where they had called it only light resistance and demoralised enemy. They didn't look so demoralised, he thought grimly. Anyway, no more time to think. He got the signal from the dispatcher and was out the door. The next 15 seconds would be the longest of his life. He remembered hearing new sounds. Thump, he heard. And then again, thump. As bullets hit, it, hit their targets, slamming into the bodies of the other men in his 13-man stick, already he could see some of his comrades hanging lifelessly in their chutes, descending to the island. Thump. Thump. It hadn't even landed yet, but the 7th Airborne Division was already dying. We were the first ones to go to Retimor, and we were suddenly noticing that we were shot at. All sorts of uh, calibers, and uh, some of uh, our comrades were hit. One of them before me was hit in the head and was dead. The parachutes opened. It, it was an incredible sight. And it was, it was almost beautiful. And it, it, we sort of stopped and said, look at that. And then we suddenly realised what it was. It was paratroops. Everywhere you look, all these parachutes coming down. Since the airdrop was such a rushed affair, the Germans made no real effort to disguise the build-up of their air assets in Greece. Using information gleaned from the British intelligence intercepts, Commonwealth planners knew every detail of the German airborne plan well before it had begun. And when the 7th Flieger Division landed, the defenders were ready and waiting. It was... You just didn't take any. You were petrified for a moment at this colossal scene of all these colours. And I think, really, everyone was sort of bloody stunned and speechless. Uh, we were uh, delighted to leave the aircraft because we thought they couldn't uh, hit us as easily as they could in the aircraft, but uh, uh, that was not so. <clears throat> in the air I heard this whistling of bullets around me 
But uh, the whistling is not so bad to hear because you know everything you hear is already past. You can't hit you anymore. And then I looked down and I saw some soldiers. There were sort of legs dangling just right above you and without small arms. And those legs were Jerry's and they were actually shooting from up there and flinging down hand grenades as they came. I didn't know at that time there were Australian soldiers shooting at me. And, well, I was very glad uh, I didn't uh, land in the middle of them, but some 20 or 30 yards off from them. Every landing uh, was made under heavy fire and suffered heavy losses. A paratrooper's nightmare. Hundreds of men died before they even hit the ground. At Malim, the defending New Zealanders had honeycombed the gently sloping and terraced hills with machine gun nests and artillery emplacements. These now literally exploded into fire around the beleaguered paratroopers. And this German soldier came along with a, one of his automatic small arms and he was obviously out after Johnny Learmont and I. John had two rounds in his service revolver, that's all he could scrounge. But Johnny just sort of caught him off guard and just put one shot and he got him right through the heart. And he just fell in a heap in this little sunken road. Poor devil, he was had ginger hair. He laid there for days and days and days. I've never seen a human being dying before that. And uh, that was on the first day already of uh, our uh, battle. And uh, after that, of course, we have seen every day dozens and dozens dying and lying there dead. We couldn't bury them, of course, during all this time. It was practically impossible. We were able to collect our dead and bury them reasonably soon after, but it was difficult and for days the bodies of the German dead and of course they, God, and there's nothing like that sweet sickly smell of, of rotting human corpse and flesh, it's, it's everywhere. The glider detachment under Major Walter Koch, meant to blaze a trail for the follow-on paratroops, was the first casualty. Defenders blew one glider up after another out of the sky, and Koch himself soon went down with a headwind. New Zealanders virtually destroyed the 3rd Battalion of the Sturm Regiment. 600 men under the command of Major Otto Schwerber, uh, east of Malin, uh, in the opening minutes of Operation Mercury, almost 400 of these would die, including Schwerber himself. Officer casualties were especially problematic, leading to command and control problems from the outset. General Susman, the divisional commander, never even made it to Greece. The wings of his glider tore off while they were still in Greek airspace, and he was killed over the island of Virginia. Likewise, the commander of the Stone Regiment, Brigadier General Eugene Mendel, took a burst of fire in the chest. He would command his unit for the rest of the day, blood oozing from his wound, until he was evacuated from Greece on, the, on May the 21st. As bad as the first wave had been, the second had it far worse. The paratroopers in the later jumps at Redimo and Heraculum landed on fully alerted defensive positions. The phrase that comes to mind for the Australians was turkey shoot. At Redimo, 
ground fire from the 2nd 1st Australia Battalion virtually destroyed two battalions of the 2nd Regiment, uh, Parachute Regiment, under Colonel Alfred Sturm. One Australian soldier described the greeting that they gave the paratroopers as, well, Empire Day, with everyone firing. The same thing happened at Heraculum. The sacrificial victim this time was the 3rd Parachute Regiment under Colonel Bruno Brau. Here, hours of preparatory bombing by the Luftwaffe produced not a single casualty among the dug-in defenders at the 2nd 4th Australian Battalion. The raids did serve to announce the coming of the paratroopers, however, and anti-aircraft fire blew one transport plane after another out of the sky. The Australians even had a handful of tanks at Heraculum and several hapless trap... And, and I did go and check, and they were Matildas. So, um, yes, when you consider what the um, paratroopers had, which was just light weapons only, they had nothing that they could really do. But, of course, the Matildas had two-pounders, and, and, of course, one of the problems with the two-pounders is that there was a distinct lack of high-explosive ammunition for them. So, other than using the machine gun, uh, the coaxial machine gun, there was very little that could be done. Now, the Black Watch Regiment was defending near Heraculum Runway, and its regimental history describes the situation. And <laughs> to my Scottish listeners, I will try to do this in a Scottish accent, so don't throw rocks at me, okay? <laughs> I'll give it my best go. Um, every German picked his swaying target and fired and picked another and fired again. Many Germans landed dead. Many were riddled as they hung there in trees and telephone wires, some tangled with each other and fell like stones. One was cut up by another aircraft. At both of these later drops, the surviving paratroopers could do nothing but make a mad scramble off their landing zones and head for relative safety in the mountains and wait and be relieved. Well, I'm sure my Scottish listeners really enjoyed that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I could not help myself. <laughs> Australians like doing accents, and um, we're always invariably terrible at it. But um, I've heard you guys doing um, Australian accents, and you know it doesn't cut the mustard. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, before we get into fights. <laughs> but things didn't get much better for those lucky enough to survive the other landings. German intelligence failures now came home to roost. Virtually everything was wrong, from the number and composition of the defending Commonwealth forces to the attitude of the civilian population. Enemy strongpoints appeared on German maps as artisan wells, a, a position that was marked as a British ration ply depot on the road between Karnay and Alekinu. A perfect target for paratroops turned out to be a large walled prison. The Greeks, having barely been considered in the German plan, fought well as they had against the Italy in the previous October. And particular note should also go to um, just the civilians who came out en masse with um, anything they could lay their hands on, from butching knives, um, scythes, meat hooks, anything you can lay your hands on. And... Um, they wrought absolute bedlam amongst the Germans. And it's... Well, can I just talk for a moment about um, a man, an Englishman, 
who was uh, John Pendlebury. Uh, now, he was a member of the, I guess you'd call it the educated upper middle class, I guess, and um, he spent about many years in the late 20s and the um, 30s through to the late 30s before he joined the military as um, an Indiana Jones-style archaeologist, I, best, I guess I'd best describe him. And he kind of, once he got in the army, he went over to fulfilling a role not unsimilar to Lawrence of Arabia in that he organised a lot of the uh, the Cretans and they, they very much loved him. He could go pretty well anywhere in Crete. Uh, he had only one eye and he'd walk around with a... Um, a sword stick all the time. He was a very eccentric kind of guy. Uh, he would have been a fascinating person to know, I think. Yeah, he, he was deeply familiarised and he'd gone totally native with the Cretans. And they loved him and he loved them. And uh, he immediately set up working, uh, outline plans, improving reconnaissance and finding water sources and things like that and um, handing it over to the, the British military. So when they when they did uh, get there, when the Italians invaded uh, into Greece in 1940 in October, the, the, the British had a pretty good layout of the overall Cretan situation. Uh, he also involved himself with a fairly unsuccessful raid at Caesos, uh, uh, which was one of the Italian islands on the Aegean. But when in 1941, the Germans were to come. Penelbury had laid his plans and he'd gathered a, a, a group of Cretan friends. and They fought very hard and they fought very well. And let me, th there was also Greek soldiers uh, who, who had transferred across with the Australians and the New Zealanders and the British when they withdrew. And they came back and they were quite effective too. They fought very well, as you would expect the Greek soldiers. Uh, the Germans hadn't even really given them any credit but they were particularly tough nuts for the paratroopers to deal with and uh, an example of it but they still played by by uh, soldiery rules whereas the, civil, uh, the civilians uh, didn't give a fig about that and they were almost fanatical in the way that they defended their island and I'll give you just a, a, a quick anecdotal story in that there was a group of paratroopers who had been surrounded by Greek soldiers and civilians and they withdrew to a, uh, a farmhouse with good all-round vision. And the Greek soldiers simply uh, picketed the area and surrounded it sort of thing because, you know, that's what they do and they thought they'd, they'd wait them out and try and get them to surrender. The Cretan civilians would have none of that and they rushed en masse and they took a lot of casualties and they entered the building with knives and scythes and everything, any bladed weapon they could get and there was great slaughter inside the house. So yes, and uh, the, the few remaining Germans that survived that attack were absolutely traumatised from it and apparently it was horrific. So yes, that was, that was the level of which the um, the Cretan civilians uh, played dice and this is one of the reasons that once the British had pulled out 
there were a lot of retaliations from the Germans. And Penbury was caught up in all of this. He, he was fighting on the 21st of May. He was fighting just off away from Heraculum when Heraculum was about to fall. Uh, he slipped away with his Cretan friends and started to head inland. And he was about 15 kilometres away from um, Heraculum. When he got out of his vehicle and went off with his friends to try and uh, fire at some Germans, and the Stukas came over and took out the vehicle and, and shot him up, and he got wounded in the chest. And they took him back to a cottage. And when the Germans arrived at the cottage, they, well, first of all, they, they dressed his wounds, uh, but they took him to being just another Cretan, even though he was speaking English, but he couldn't convince the Germans that he wasn't just another partisan. And, well, essentially he was put up in a clean shirt, he was put up against the wall, and uh, he was shot through the head and, and with firing squads. So that was the end of um, John Pendlebury. The Cretans, who were supposedly anti-British, joined eagerly in the defence of their homeland, taking potshots at Germans, spearing wounded paratroopers or mutilating the dead. Now, to this end, the unprecedented resistance from the local population, it really exasperated the Prussian sense of military order. And according to uh, the Prussians, only professional warriors should be allowed to fight. Reports from General Julius Ringel, commander of the 5th Mountain Division, stated that the Cretan civilians were picking off paratroopers or attacking them with knives, axes and scythes. Um, it just makes your blood run cold when you think about it. Even before the end of the battle, unproven and exaggerated stories had begun to circulate, attributing the excessively high casualties to torture and mutilation of the paratroopers by the Cretan. When these stories reached the Luftwaffe High Command in Berlin, Goring ordered the temporary commander General Kurt Student to undertake inquiries and reprisals. Thus seeking to counter insurgency and before inquiries were complete, Student issued an order for launching a wave of brutal reprisals against the local population right after the surrender of the creek on the 31st of May. Reprisals were carried out rapidly, admitting formalities or trials by the same units who had been confronted by the locals. Moreover, this disastrous first day was taking place against the backdrop of a relentless timetable. Uh, it wasn't enough for the paratroopers uh, to simply consolidate. The task would have had to have been hard enough under these circumstances but they had to move out and seize the airfield as well. Lightly armed and with greater mobility, most jumped with only a pistol, four hand, four hand grenades and um, a knife. Paratroopers could not long sustain combat with ordinary infantry. Their small arms came down in separate canisters for them to retrieve after landing, but the landings had been uh, under such heavy fire that the German jumpers, that look, they never did get uh, most of the canisters, so they are always fighting uh, with one arm tied behind their back. And by the end of the first day, uh, none of the three airfields on Crete was anywhere near to being German hands. Ultimately, 
It was the tangled nature of the Commonwealth command structure on Crete that rescued Operation Mercury. Lieutenant General Bernard Freiberg, the, command, the commander of the force defending Crete, as well as the 2nd New Zealand Division, had only received his appointment uh, on the 30th of April. He must have wondered what he had got himself into, I guess. The, the ragged remnants of the same units that had been dismantled by the Germans in Greece was a disparate grouping of 17,000 uh, British, a large number of Greeks, perhaps up to 10,000, maybe 12,000 at tops, some 8,000 New Zealanders and more than 6,000 Australians. Given enough time to drill and work out acceptable command procedures, and with a victory or two under its belt, such a force might have been a well-oiled machine, but that was not the case on Crete. One officer put it this way, We were a motley collection. We didn't know where our own people were. We didn't know where the enemy were. Many people had no rifles and no ammunition. If anyone fired at you, he might either A, be an enemy, B, a friend, see a friend or an enemy who didn't know who the hell you were, or D, somebody not firing at you at all. Making the command situation even more chaotic was the presence in large numbers of Cretan regulars fighting on the Allied side. Some 16,000 Italian prisoners taken by the Greeks in the mainland fighting and the King of the Hellenes, George II. Thousands of non-combatant Commonwealth troops also shared the island. These were depot and support formations, part of the logistical train for the failed uh, expedition to Greece. Units like the Australian Army Service Corps, uh, the Stevedore Company, the 1003 Docks Operation Company, the Mobile Naval Base Defence Organisation Maintenance Company, and labour units that were not going to aid materially to the defence. You, you get my uh, meaning. You know, there's a lot of mouths to feed, and um, they weren't going to contribute anything meaningful uh, at all against the Germans. Moreover, Freiburg could not simply plan to counter enemy paratroopers. He was. He also had to worry about landings from the sea. We may know today that Axis amphibious landings were a forlorn hope. However, Freiburg certainly did not. Having so many similar forces assigned so many different missions left Freiburg unable to coordinate his response to the landings. Pre-Force, as it was called, observed German air landings and did their best and in many cases shot them to pieces. But far too many units on Crete simply stayed in place waiting for orders that never came. While Kree-Force uh, outnumbered the Germans, the imbalance in air power more than offset the advantage. It is incredible that Prime Minister Winston Churchill could tell Freiburg to hold Crete to the last man and to, the, to turn the port of Suda into the second Scarborough, then expect him to do uh, exactly that with three dozen aircraft, only half of which were serviceable at any time. The British, however, needed to preserve their front line aircraft for Egypt. Freiburg had earned a reputation as a fighter in World War I and had a Victoria Cross to prove it and we will cover that at a later date. But he could see that the situation here was probably irredeemable. So he spent most of May attempting to turn his tattered force into an army 
all the while observing the depressing spectacle of uncontested sorties by Richthofen's squadrons turning Northern Crete into an inferno. Once the battle started, it only got worse, as Cree Force reserves found that road movements attracted Stukas. German air superiority had a lot to do with the most famous or infamous event in the Battle of Crete. The airfield at Malim quickly became the focus of the fighting. And here for the first time enters our hero, Charles Hazlitt Upham, VC and Bar. Now let's talk briefly about his background, shall we? Charles Hazlitt Upham, who was born in 1908 and died in 1994, was born at 32 Gloucester Street. He boarded at Weihai School near Winchester, South Canterbury, uh, between 1917 and 1922, and at the Christ College Church from 1923 to 1927. He attended Canterbury Agricultural College, where he learned a diploma in agriculture. So he identified himself as a bit of a country lad, and he represented the Canterbury Agricultural College at rugby and in rowing. He worked first as a sheep farmer, later as manager, and then valuing uh, farms for the New Zealand government. In 1937, he joined the valuation department as assistant district valuer in Timaru. The following year, he became engaged to Molly Eileen McTammy, a distant relative of Noel Chavez, VC and Bar. Uh, sadly, shortly afterwards, Molly left New Zealand with without them getting married. In 1939, he returned to Lincoln uh, to complete a diploma in valuation and farm management. In September 1939, Upham enlisted in the 2nd New Zealand Expeditionary Force at the age of 30 and was posted to the 20th Canterbury Otago Battalion, uh, part of the New Zealand Division. Despite the fact that he had already had five years um, experience in New Zealand's Territorial Army, in which he held the rank of Sergeant, he signed on as a private. He was soon promoted to temporary lance corporal, but initially declined a place in the officer cadet training unit. I wasn't able to find um, precisely why he did that. In December, he was promoted to sergeant and a week later sailed for Egypt. In July 1940, he was finally persuaded to join the OCTU. Upham was awarded his first Victoria Cross on Crete in 1941, commanding a platoon at the Battle of Malim airfield, during the course of which uh, he was asked to advance 3,000 yards with his platoon and was held up three times, and each time carrying a bag of grenades, his favourite weapon, Upham first attacked a G German machine gun nest, killing eight paratroopers, then destroyed another, which had been set up in a house. Finally, he crawled to within 15 yards of a Boffer's anti-aircraft gun before knocking it out. When the advance being completed, he helped carry a wounded man to safety in full view of the enemy, and then ran half a mile under fire to save a company from being cut off. Two Germans tried to stop him, and he killed them both. Uh, the next day, Upham was wounded in the shoulder by a mortar burst and uh, hit in the foot by a bullet. Undeterred, he continued fighting, with his arm in a sling and hobbled about in the open to draw enemy fire and enable their gun positions to be spotted. <laughs> Just, oh dear. 
With his unwounded arm, he propped his rifle in the fork of a tree and killed two approaching Germans. The second was so close that he fell on the muzzle of Upham's rifle. Bloody hell. During the retreat from Crete, Upham succumbed to dysentery and could not eat properly. The effect of this and his wounds made him look a little bit like a walking skeleton. His commanding officer had noted. Nevertheless, he found the strength to climb the side of a 600-foot deep ravine and use a Bren gun on a group of advancing Germans. At the range of 500 yards, he killed 22 out of the 50. His subsequent VC citation recorded that he had performed a series of remarkable exploits showing outstanding leadership, tactical skill and utter indifference to danger. Even under the hottest fire, Upham never wore a steel helmet, explaining that he could never find one that fit him. When elements from the 2nd, 3rd and the 4th battalions of the Sturm Regiment formed up and headed for the field, they had come under heavy fire from a dominant height to the south, known to the locals as Kavaskia Hill, but destined to go down in history as Hill 107. A Commonwealth Infantry Battalion, the 22nd New Zealand, held it firmly. The first day saw a day-long back-and-forth struggle on Hill 107. It was a confusing fight, without clear front lines and with heavy losses on both sides. These were the actions that uh, caused Charles Upton to get his first VC, and um, he pulls out of Crete and he shipped back to Egypt, and uh, we'll see him pop his head back up again. Um, when El Alamein comes around. So, um, well done, Charles, and we'll see you in the next episode. All right. Now, when elements from the 2nd and 3rd and the 4th battalions of the Sturm Regiment formed up and headed for the field at Malim, uh, they had come under heavy fire from a dominant height to the south, known to the locals as Kabaskia Hill, but destined to go down in history as Hill 107. A Commonwealth Infantry Battalion, the 22nd New Zealand, held it very firmly. The first days saw a day-long back-and-forth struggle from Hill 107. It was a confusing fight and without clear front lines and with heavy losses on both sides. In the course of the day, the Germans fought with an increasing sense of desperation. The campaign and the very survival of 7th Flieger Division hung in the balance. The commander of the 22nd New Zealand, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew, however, was feeling the same kind of pressure. His casualties had been heavy, about half of his unit. Communication with his subordinate companies was intermittent at best, and the counter-attack he launched late in the afternoon, spearheaded by two Matilda infantry tanks, had broken down as soon as it began. The struggle for the Hill 107 was a classic example of the information poor battlefield from both sides and typically both felt that they were losing. It certainly seemed that way to student uh, as bad news poured in from his headquarters at the Grand Bretagne Hotel in Athens. Not only had his men failed to seize an airfield but it wasn't even possible to say that any of his force had a secure airhead. Malim, where German forces held about half of the field, was the only place on the map where they could even get close to success. Student now made a bold and risky decision. The next day, the 5th Mountain Division would begin landing at Malim. Whatever the situation there, that is 
well, some would say foolhardy, but if it pays off, my God, what a decision. His original plans had called for the first reinforcements to land at Heraklion, since it was essentially located on the island's north coast. He now scrapped the plan in favour of ramming everything he could find into Malim. He also decided to land the few reinforcements he had left, a mere handful of companies, to assist the Sturm Regiment in its fight for Malim airfield. Just as Student was reaching his decision, the New Zealanders around Malim were reaching one of their own. Believing the German force to be much larger than it actually was, and having no contact with his neighbouring battalions, and fearing that the long arm of the Luftwaffe uh, would return in the morning, Colonel Andrew decided to withdraw from Hill 107. As we survey the situation today, his decision seemed disastrous, but not incomprehensible. The New Zealand official history comments fairly on the hard conditions in which he had to make his choice. Andrew had spent a most exacting day trying to control a battle where all the circumstances refused to be controlled. Uh, communications within his battalion had failed him almost completely. Outside it, they had proven to be uh, extremely poor. He and his headquarters had been severely harassed by bombing and strafing throughout the day to the extent that which neither training nor experience had prepared them. The enemy attack itself was of a kind still novel and from the start induced a feeling and reality as well of enemy all around the perimeter and inside it also. Then battle had begun with an enemy breach in the defences, the support he had expected and counted on from the 21st and the 23rd battalions failed to materialise and this meant a radical departure from the original battle plan. Andrew had spent much of the day pleading for reinforcements from his commander Brigadier James Hargrest of the 5th New Zealand Brigade and threatening to withdraw from Hill 107 if they did not show up soon. Hargrest was the commander of two other battalions that had more than held up their own that day but also had to be concerned about in regards to a seaborne landing, Eastern Malane and further airborne drops. The official history says, well, perhaps somewhat charitably perhaps, that he misread the situation. That evening, Andrew's 22nd New Zealand Battalion moved east, eventually linking up with its sister battalions, the 21st and the 23rd. Early in the morning on the May the 21st, the Germans launched a last desperate assault against Hill 107. Leading one of the columns was the 1st Lieutenant Horse Trebes. Leading the other was Dr Heinrich Newman, the Chief Regimental Surgeon and now de facto Battalion Commander. To the astonishment and the relief of the Germans, the hill was now empty. Actually, we were quite surprised because we had always expected the opposite to happen. We thought uh, it might take another fortnight or so to fight there, and then we might have to surrender or shoot ourselves. That was what we expected. And on the 30th of May, the Austrian and Bavarian mountain troops arrived, and uh, I think this was the most beautiful day of my life. There was still tough fighting this day, however, uh, as Trebes and Newman and men like him uh, commanding improvised squads of surviving German paratroopers 
fought to push back the Commonwealth defenders from Malim Airfield. They succeeded only partially, and on the afternoon of the 21st, the airfield was still within range of enemy artillery, just 24 hours into the operations. Mercury was about to reach a dramatic climax. About 5pm, the first Junker 52s began to arrive. They had run another gauntlet of fire, many aircraft being blown apart as they tried to land, others skidding off the short 2,000-foot runway, which was referred to by one German as a postage stamp. Soon the blazing wrecks of more than 80 aircraft and hundreds of dead bodies littered the airfield. Planes landed, disgorged their men and cargo and immediately took off again. Gradually, enough aircraft made it safely down, either on the airstrip or directly on the beach, to deliver a battalion of the 100th Mountain Regiment, and then elements of the 85th. By nightfall, these units were in action, with their organic light artillery on and around the airfield. The next day, they began slithering up the winding mule paths into the mountains to silence the British guns. Although there was enough tough fighting left, the arrival of the 5th Mountain Division had sealed the fate for Cree Force. Through the rest of the campaign, the Germans were driving east out of Malim. Uh, General Ringel was now in overall command of the German troops on Crete, and he handled this part of the operation deftly, combining a series of direct thrusts along the coastal road by the paratroopers with flanking manoeuvres to the south by his tough mountaineers. As always in this phase of the war, these manoeuvres took place under the cover of non-stop bombing and strafing from Richthofen's Stukas and Mischersmiths. Commonwealth troops abandoned one defence position after another, had turned their positions. The New Zealanders put up one hard fight at the town of Galatas between Malim and Suda on May the 25th. The Germans took the town lost it to a Kiwi counter-attack, and then took it back again the next morning. The New Zealanders even took prisoners here, including Corporal Hans Krindler, who earlier described his harrowing jump. He would be freed once his comrades had retaken the town, and would go on to survive the war. Freeburg had now decided to abandon the island. Over the next three days, his little army had to cross Crete's mountainous spine, under the heavy air attack and Utz's 100th Mountain Regiment, nipping at his heels the whole way. I said, oh, look, there's all our tanks and things coming along. And he got his binoculars out and he said, no, they're not our tanks. And then as he was speaking, I could see great black crosses on those things. And they made for the tiny port of Safgir on the southern coast, 40 miles away. Even the British official history called it a melancholy occasion, and I, I can only imagine. They, they must have just thought to themselves, "Oh, here we go again." You know, they just—they'd literally been in this situation in Greece, and um, probably felt like they couldn't turn a trick. But they'd done mighty work up until that point. Their fighting was extremely fair. And uh, I have, uh, during the last war, and uh, served for three years during the war in Russia, and I was uh, in other parts uh, of the war, and I must say this fairness which existed between the Australians and the Germans in Australia 
has nowhere else existed. Once at Safgir, the British managed to carry out yet another evacuation under fire. It was the usual British combination, one that the Germans had run into before, a tenacious rearguard effort led by Colonel Robert Laycock's battalion-sized commander unit, known as Lay Force, and the hero heroism of officers and men of the Royal Navy, who carried out their missions while dodging and or failing to dodge Luftwaffe bombs the entire time. Still, it was far from a complete success for the British. Some 16,000 Commonwealth troops managed to get away. The Hellenic King escaped as well, after a a few harrowing moments when German paratroopers dropped just outside the village sheltering him, uh, but he was able to scarper. By the 30th of May, Lieutenant Colonel Ian Campbell, commander officer of the 2nd 1st Battalion and Retimo Force uh, commander, decided further resistance at Retimo was pointless and ordered his men to surrender. What to do? Well, being a regular officer, there wasn't much future in surrendering. But finally I decided that was the thing to do. I first of all sent down my quartermaster with a white flag, but uh, they didn't seem to take much notice of him, and he came back to say that they didn't seem to recognise the white flag. So I took it from him and I went down the little path onto and across the airstrip and surrendered my force at Retimo. We all went down onto the airstrip the Messerschmitts came in and did their ruddy victory rail over us and, and we just sat on the airstrip and I said, just shut your tin hats in a heap and that was it. Major Sandover, leading the 2nd 11th Battalion, ordered his men uh, the choice of surrender or escape. Many took the latter option, evading the capture for several months, living in the mountains with the assistance uh, from the local population. Yeah, there's two things that you reckon will never happen to you. One that you'll get killed or wounded, and the other one is you'll get captured like you never. I suppose the thought of getting captured never enters anyone's mind. That's the last card in the pack completely. The only one thing that I thought were World War One went on for four years, and this place, this one's been going a couple of years now, so it can't go on as long as World War One. Famous last words, because I was four years in Germany. Yeah, four of the best years of my life. Down the drain, because when I was 22 till I was 26, what great times they are when you think of them. They just went. Locals helping Allied soldiers risked death if discovered. Between June and September, approximately 600 Allied soldiers escaped the island of Crete. Almost one in ten of the escapees were from the 2nd 11th Battalion. Their stories provide a fitting sequel to the journey of Odysseus. We had Norman for about six months uh, hidden here. And then my father took him after six months, the resistance, I mean, the resistance grew in Crete as soon as actually virtually the Germans landed. So I... Uh, after six months, my father took Norman and uh, took him up in the mountains and then they start taking people that were left behind uh, to Egypt. 
Yet about 13,000 men fell into German hands, including virtually all of the defensive garrisons in the eastern zone of Retamo and Heraculin. It was all over by May 31. Uh, we never heard of Norman again. We don't know what happened to him. I know that if he was alive, certainly he would come back. I think what it was, we felt they were like us. Um, brave, a little bit crazy, you know, not uh, just, oh, well, we can't do this because uh, it is not, uh, you know, it's not normal or other people don't do it. Um, they were not only brave, they were happy people. All right. Well, what are the lessons of Mercury? I guess it depends where you sit, really. Like, friends of uh, the Airborne would claim that it was a clear demonstration of the power of the parachute arm. Students intrepid Falshamyaga, uh, they argue, would attack and seize the island against uh, overwhelming hostile forces. They held, and I guess, look, naysayers would point out that it was at a very, very high human cost. The Germans lost some something like 4,000 men killed and 2,500 wounded from a single small division of just 12,000 men. These were elite soldiers, and they were expensive soldiers. Um, they were expensive to train, and they were highly skilled. They could not be easily replaced. And look, can I just talk for a moment about the equipment of the Falschmjager? Now, everybody's probably seen war movies and things like that where they, they think of the um, British and American paratroopers coming down. They've got both of their hands up on uh, the two straps coming down from the parachutes and they're, they're called risers and it allows them to have basic um, manoeuvrability um, and the man himself uh, inside the apparatus is able to be like straight up and down and so therefore he doesn't come down at, at a weird angle and on top of that they also had their weaponry and everything on them they had small bags whether they could carry heavier piece of equipment with them so when they hit the, hit the ground that they had that equipment now with the german uh they didn't have risers they they had a single point at, uh like between the shoulder blades where the parachute was connected to the harness and it allowed them basically they, they could not maneuver at all and they would come down and not only would they come down they came down at an angle so when they hit the ground um they there was a lot of a lot of damage they gave them knee pads and arm pads and things like that to try and minimize it but um people would be horrified you know paratroopers would be horrified today if they were given this equipment and expected to jump out of an airplane with it so there was a lot of um, injuries that didn't have to necessarily um, have that so yes okay well moving on um in regards to them not being easily easily replaced this was the point of view of one man on the german side who counted adolf hitler Crete proved that the days of the parachute troops were over, he told Student um, at in July 17 reception in the honour of bearers uh, for the Knight's Cross. Paratroopers had lost the element of surprise, Hitler has said, and Student 
shaken by the loss of so many of the men he had trained personally with, uh, called Crete the graveyard of the German airborne force. Never again would the Wehrmacht launch a large-scale airborne operation. Well, it was almost an unmitigated disaster in terms of people killed, in terms of the decimation of the Mediterranean fleet, and particularly in terms of the effect on the Middle East campaign. It nearly caused Britain to be expelled from Egypt altogether and the loss of 500,000 men. Uh, and it meant that the Middle East campaign dragged on for another two years until 1943. The Allies, however, apparently learned the exact opposite lesson. Having lost Crete, they began to consider that what other feats paratroopers might accomplish. And in the wake of Operation Mercury, they began to enlarge and upgrade their airborne forces uh, and to ready them for action. At the time of Mercury, for example, there was a lone American uh, battalion of parachutes. Five months later, there was four. Uh, once the United States had entered the war, those battalions quickly became regiments, then divisions, and eventually formed the first uh, paratroop corps, the 18th Airborne. Historians and pundits alike have criticised Hitler's verdict. It is one of those inexplicably bad decisions that the Fuhrer had made, on which the issue of the war allegedly hung. But how wrong was he in this case? Certainly the Allied experience with airborne landings would be mixed. A near fiasco on Sicily, where transports disgorged many of their paratroopers into the sea. Uh, near chaos, uh, behind Utah Beach in 1944 on D-Day, where only the weak nature of German opposition prevented a potential disaster, and finally a real debacle at Arnhem in Operation Market Garden uh, in September 1944. The catastrophic... <laughs> Let's talk about the Soviets for a moment. Not to be outdone, the Soviets uh, had a catastrophic airborne drop at Kanev in 1943. Perhaps the less said about it is the better, uh, but look, suffice it to say that it's probably not a good idea to wait to brief the air crews and their paratroopers on the airborne mission and um, until they're ready to already in the air. So they were getting their instructions as they were flying. And that the dropping of the airborne force directly on top of a panzer division is really a good practice. I will leave that to your imagination. And nor is it wise to carry out a drop without performing at least a rudimentary reconnaissance of hostile anti-aircraft assets. Um, for all of these reasons, the Germans crushed the landings. The, the few Soviet airborne troops who survived found themselves scattered and helpless over 20 miles. OK, so what about Mercury itself? But if you are committed as part of the Australian army to a cause or to an expedition, to an operation, you must assume, you do assume, I think, that it's for a good reason. If you discover it later that it was rubbish, well, that's too late. But having committed yourself to it, you're really going to see it through and not fold up. You know, there two times when I would have sold out pretty cheaply, but I suppose survival's a pretty strong, basic thing in all of us. And and, but, you know, me, I'm no, I'm no hero. I just 
put my head down and merged along with, although I did have a few moments, but in the main, I just tried to play it as cool as I could. So what do you think you should say to your grandsons on Anzac Day? Well, have a look, you know. Don't get carried away by the band and the flag and uh, the nice marching done by the old boys. I said it's not all flags and bands and marching. It's got its dirtier moments. But uh, I don't discourage him. I said, let's be proud, you know, of the fact that uh, we've fought in wars. On one level, it showcased German operational skills. These included split-second timing, extremely close liaison between ground and air forces, and the ease of which the German infantry and gunners formed ad hoc task force under fire, and students leap into the breach opened by the evacuation of Hill 107. Such things had been seen before in German military history, of course, and they would be seen again. The entire campaign was audacious, involving, as student pointed out, um, our one parachute division, our one glider regiment and the 5th mountain division, which had no previous experience of being transported by air. The victory on Crete was hard fought, but not undeserved. There were problems, however, uh, or at least warning signs for the future German operations. Wehrmark intelligence before the drop had not been uh, great. Uh, it had been, well, it, it, abysmal really. The Germans grossly underestimated the size of the Commonwealth force on Crete. Counterintelligence had been altogether absent. The Germans had made no effort to hide their airborne build-up in Greece, and the British were able to predict with remarkable accuracy what was about to hit them. The drop was so dispersed and scattered that it was impossible to detect um, a point of main effort, or Schwerpunkt, um, or what's another way of describing it? Uh, a centre of gravity, if you will. And this had been crucial to German military operations. Okay. They tried to be strong everywhere on Crete, and were strong nowhere. But I guess, look, the final verdict, I guess, any operation requires um, heavily laden transport aircraft to land on an airstrip under direct fire of artillery has probably cut a few things a bit too close to the mark. That's not how you set things up. And there was... Well, look, to be generous, let's call it rookie mistakes, although it shouldn't have been rookie mistakes because they'd done this a few times and I think the Germans, as well as everybody else, were slow to pick up on it. First of all, those dreadful um, riserless uh, parachutes of theirs, they, they should have replaced them and, and got decent ones. And the Germans had access to decent parachutes. They just simply didn't give them to the Fallschirmjager. Um their aircraft parachutes um, for their pilots were standard. Uh, they just decided these guys didn't need them. They just chucked them out of the aeroplane and they'd be good enough. And finally, what of the brave men themselves who had the unenviable task of jumping um, into the hell of Malim? For all time and care and calculation that go into an airdrop, 
operational planning will never be an exact science, no matter who is doing it. And this is very true for the German operation like Mercury, planned on the fly for in a matter of weeks. And it is also true for the Allied operation like Overlord, planned systematically uh, by an army of technicians over a span of 18 months. Um, as soon as battle starts, things go wrong. And you need to have wide tolerances, I guess is the best way of thinking of it, in order for when things do go wrong to be able to adjust and adapt, have extensive reinforcements and backup plans. No military planner or staff officer uh, wakes up in the morning and decides to foul things up on purpose. The complexity of military operations is, in the modern age, virtually guarantees that things can and will go wrong. Uh, as Mercury shows, it can go terribly wrong. 18 months of meticulous Allied planning really did, after all, result in the frontal assault uh, by a single US infantry division against a German infantry division dug in on the bluffs of Omaha Beach. And so it was on Crete, where some very fine military minds put together a plan that caused many men, far too many, to jump to their deaths. Crete remained occupied by the Axis forces until the end of the war. That concludes the explanation of the Battle of Crete. I would like to thank for this week's briefing Robert M. Satino, a British uh, professor at the University of North Texas, uh, and he put a dissertation together, and I used um, sections of his piece that he had written um, to lay out the framework for this episode, just to give it a little bit more structure. And after the last episode with uh, Greece, I felt structure was required. Like I, I thought it was a bit of a mess myself, but um, it's. It, I've, I'm finding that. Each particular uh, campaign that we're doing, like uh, Vimy Ridge, uh, they all have their own particular requirements. And um, Vimy Ridge was a pretty straightforward affair. And also Crete is relatively straightforward as well. The German paratroopers landed on Crete. They fought for a couple of days and and the um, Allies pulled back and got off the island. Whereas with the, the Greek uh, campaign it was just a mess you know and it's and I I'm sure it probably comes across as such but I, I try not put as much emphasis onto what units going here and what units going there and doing what have you sort of thing but if you don't do some of it then you can't really explain what's actually happening on the ground but anyway yes well, thank you Robert uh, Robert has written extensively on uh, the German Army, and his most recent book, if I can get in a plug for him, uh, The Wehrmacht Retreats, which I highly recommend. So check it out by Robert N. Citino. That's C-I-T-I-N-O. So you can go and get that at all good bookstores. So in the end, what do we do with these two ill-fated campaigns? And, and what do they mean to us? And it's going to be a little bit insular here and, and, and just talk in particular about Australia and New Zealand because we hardly ever hear about this particular campaign and I, I lump them both into the same. I, I think they're two sides of the same coin. But if you look around Australia and I can't really speak for New Zealand although I imagine it's, it's in a similar circumstance 
um, and you look down at your cappuccino and your sablaki and all the various different um, foods and various different things from Greece and Italy that are just, we don't even give them a, a moment's thought anymore. Um, there's the clue. Um, as refugees and prisoners of war from that campaign came to our shores and helped build our city's culture and infrastructure and blended into our societies and I think for its greater betterment you know we, we had um, there was a bit of friction after the war and and I remember uh, in the 70s uh, when I was a kid um, <laughs> I could remember there was a bit of friction I, I lived in a small country town and there was a, a, a high uh, amount of um, Italians and first generation and second generation kids when we went to school with them sort of thing and there was I have to say there was a lot of racism in that town and and it was directed at them and you know I could not I could not think of Australia now without them there I, I, I know we eat better um, certainly um, for their presence here that's for sure but more than even this I mean Without this defeat, I think we can, it's not a big stretch to say we may never have won the war in the first place. And I'll just leave you with that thought. If you're enjoying the um, podcast, then um, by all means, share them with your friends and um, people that you think that would, would enjoy these. And um, even if you've got to put it on their phones and show them how to use it, sometimes people... Uh, barely aware of of um, how podcasts even work, and uh, once once people get going, they usually fall in love with podcasts, as, as we all know. So yes, um, don't forget to uh, if you're really enjoying it, just to help us and kick us along, sort of thing. You can go on iTunes and rate and review us, and um, yep, just share the love by all means, please. Okay, next time. We head south to the blistering sands and the baking rocks of Egypt and gaze into the wavering mirages of in the desert to await the coming of the desert fox, General Erwin Rommel, as he drives his dust-encrusted Africa Corps to that fateful dune of Al Alamein. Okay, until then, bye-bye. Now, boys, would you like to send a cheerio home through the Australian photographic unit? Yeah! yeah. Right, number one, come on, buddy. Kimpy, greetings to you all. We Queensland boys are fit and well and holding our own. He's another, Mick. Where are you? Come on. Mick Taylor sends greetings to Tasmania. How about a cargo or two of apples? We forget how they taste. Telling me. Come on, this piano tickler. Where are you? James from Dunedin, which sends very kind regards and good all wishes and cheerio for New Zealand. Of course, not forgetting Sydney. All I can say is that we're just raring to go. Cheer everyone. Come on, Sonny. Hello, South Australia. Cheerio, John, Judy, and all at home in Adelaide. Also, elders in all states. Now, where's Nugget? Here I am. You've had a lot to say, old boy. What about you giving him an hour, miss? You're telling me. Are we spawning? I'll say we are. Hitler, you're doomed. You're not in the boom. You'll simply prove the failure. Give up, you run. You're not in the hunt. And let us go back to Australia. Hey!